Well, good morning. Uh, this morning as we begin, uh, first, my name is Andrew, and if you're here with us for the first time, I just want to welcome you. Um, I'm one of the associate pastors. I'm the associate pastor here. I guess there's not another one, so I guess that would make me the <laughs> associate pastor. Um, as we begin this morning, uh, many of you probably received the email yesterday uh, that Dan White went home to be with the Lord. And so we're going to take just a moment here at the beginning to pray for, to pray for his family. So we please uh, just join me in prayer for them. Uh, God, we thank you for the hope that we have as we've just sung about. And there will be a day when Christ shall take us home. And we thank you. We thank you that Dan's hope, his faith was in Jesus Christ. We praise you for uh, the hope that we have and the joy that we can have, even in the midst of grief, because we know that he is with you. And Lord, in this time, we want to pray that your grace and your mercy and your comfort will be over his family. For Glendy, and for Mary, for the rest of his extended family who's here as well, Lord, we pray that you would walk with them through these moments that your spirit would just impress upon their hearts your nearness to them. We just lift them to you. And Lord, as we come to this time now of opening up your word, uh, we think that, we just think that there are a thousand reasons that could cause us not to hear this morning. And Lord, I just wanna pray that you would be at work in these moments to speak what you desire to say to hearts that are really ready to hear and to listen. Thank you, Lord, that you are greater and mightier than the things that are distracting to us. You are greater and mightier than a hard heart, than worries or fears, than a lack of understanding, than even the work of the devil himself. And so it is our desire, Lord, that as we open up your word, which brings light and life, that you would speak. And give us grace now, God, we ask to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, the title of today's sermon is The Church. Nice, small, concise topic to start the new year out with. I was thinking about this going like, the great thing about choosing a topic like this is you can either talk about the Gospels and where Jesus was beginning to institute the church. You can talk about the book of Acts where the church began or any of the New Testament epistles where it's being written to either the church or somebody in charge of a church or Revelation, the book about the future. So it's good. It's a nice, small, concise topic that we have an opportunity to walk through this morning. And I want to go about it kind of with three questions. I want to talk about it from the perspective of what's the plan? What's the plan for the church? And, and, and to kind of look at, like, what are we doing? What's the church to be doing? What's going on with it? And I want to look at the priority, how we're doing it. And I want to look at, finally, what's, what's the purpose and, and why. So what are we doing? How are we doing it? And, and why? And I think these are important questions for us to consider. I don't know if you've ever been part of a, a group who was going along throughout the day, and somebody put a plan in place, and then some point as you're carrying out the plan, you're like, wait, why are we doing this? Does that make sense? So, so all of these things come together of not, not only what we're doing, but what order we're doing them in and, and why. What's the end? And so it, just in preview of this, as, as we ask each of these questions, we're going to be looking at a different picture that is given to us in God's word about the church. So just in preview, we're going to be looking at the church as Jesus' building project, the church as Jesus' body, and the church as Jesus' bride. From the beginning, I want to tell you, uh, since we're doing a survey, we're going to read a few different passages of Scripture. And uh, as I was preparing this, I, I was slightly dying inside. As I'm, I'm trying to focus on the church, but I'm going through these passages which have all these marvelous, glorious truths. And, and so one of the things I just want to say from the beginning is, it's just a summary and you'll do great spending more time thinking and meditating through these passages throughout your week, but we're going to take our time primarily to focus on what each of them says about the church. So let's look at this first question together. What's, what's the plan? 
What's the plan? The first time we find this word church in our English translations of the Bible, Jesus is he's speaking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. And so we're going to begin looking there in this book that was written by one of Jesus' disciples. If you have your, your Bible with you this morning, if you want to turn or um, open there to Matthew chapter 16. If you want to use one of the Bibles in front of you, there's a, a Bible provided you, and there's, there's two parts to that Bible. It's in the kind of the second part, page 14. We're going to begin by looking at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 18. In honor of the word of the Lord, would you please stand as we read together. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, well, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You may be seated. As we look at this first first point, what's the plan? We look at it, and the answer of Jesus is this. The church is Jesus' building project. On this rock I will build my church. He's putting together his people. Uh, the word that's translated church, it's a word that's used in different ways. It's kind of like the way we use the word assembly. We use an assembly. You could have a, a legislative assembly. What's that mean? It's a group of legislators. Um, you could have a casual gathering of people, like they assembled together. Um, and that's the way that this word was, was traditionally used. But it's a group of people with shared beliefs, a community with something in common. And so as we look at this passage and we kind of zone in on, on what Jesus is saying here, there's the first things that we need to notice. The one is that the owner-builder is who? It's Jesus. The owner-builder is Jesus himself. And he says that I will build my church. After Peter's confession about who Jesus is, Jesus tells them his, his plan for the future. You guys see that, right? This is my plan for the future. I will build my church. He's going to build an assembly. It's not any old assembly. He's going to build an assembly that belongs to him. And it's, it's a very actually interesting phrase because you know how we would say like you're building a, building a I'm going to build a house. It's that idea. It's the idea of constructing. The idea of putting together piece by piece. And what he's putting together piece by piece is an assembly of people. And it, it's not just what they who they have in common as their builder, but it's what they're built on as well. We see that what these people have in common, not only that Jesus is their builder or that they belong to Jesus, but that also Jesus is building them on this rock. Which makes us ask the question, hopefully you're asking the question, what's this rock? It's a good question, good job. What is this rock? There are, um, one, of the, one of the fun things about preparing to preach is you're like, okay, I'm gonna get to into the understanding and then you like start studying the commentaries and you're like, one guy says this, and another guy says this, and pretty soon you're realizing like everybody throughout church history is saying something different. You're like, I have to tell people what this says. It's a very fun position to be in. And there are some disagreements on this and some of them are like minor and small where you're like, I see where you're going, I think it's this, but it's the same, it's the same point. You know how you like agree to disagree and we still get along. And then there are other differences in this passage where it's like you end up with a pope or not. That's a pretty big distinction, right? Pretty big distinction. I think what we need to understand here is that there's this, there's this linguistic thing that's going on here. I just wanna show you words, um, show you words. These are Greek words and they're Greek to me as well. So. Peter, Jesus is making a pun. He's making a pun, he's, and it's a pun regarding this name that he's given Peter. What is Peter's actual name? His name is Simon. But Jesus has called him and referred to him as Peter. 
which is this idea of, of a rock or a stone. And it's a rock or a stone that is, comes from something that is Petra, which would be like, you sent, like, you guys been to Half Dome? You seen, like, seen Half Dome. Would you call that a rock? It is. You're wrong. You're all wrong. No, just kidding. It's a rock. But, but it's the second kind of rock here. It's that idea of a, an, an impenetrable fortress, like a cliff, something that is immovable. Does that make sense? Now, now the nature of the first one is that it obviously has come from or is built on or is part of the second one. And this is why there's some disagreement about, is he talking about the confession that Peter has just made? Or is he talking about Peter himself? It seems too much to say that, that Jesus would actually build his church on this person. But what you need to look at is what Peter has just done. And what Peter has just done is he has answered Jesus' question, confessing this amazing truth about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Christ, and that word means God's anointed. And to like just quickly sum up 2,000 years of history, God's anointed was this, this term for, for, for Peter and for the Jews that were with him that was everything that God had promised about this person that he's going to be sending. Like there's thousands of years of history, promise after promise after promise that God has made about this one that he's going to send who is going to be his anointed savior of the world. That God had promised for, since actually Genesis chapter three to send. And that is who Jesus is, and that's who Peter confesses him to be, and not just the Christ, but the very son of the living God. And this is where I have to keep moving, because we could spend a lot of time just on, on that. But Jesus' response shows that, I, I think what he shows is that he's, he's thrilled at what Peter has said, and not just because Peter has said it and what that means for Peter and the rest of the disciples, but because of what Jesus recognizes it means beyond that, and that his heavenly Father is the one who's revealed it. And he looks at Peter, and, he, and, and that, that phrase, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that's blessed are you, son of Jonah, because the heavenly Father, my heavenly Father, has revealed this to you. And Peter's declaration here is a God-given revelation about who Jesus is. And the foundation of the very assembly that Jesus is going to build is going to be laid on an immovable rock as these very men sitting in front of Jesus now are going to proclaim to the world this truth that Peter has just confessed about who Jesus is. And John Piper said it like this. He's, he said, it's, it's as if Jesus is saying to Peter, on you, my authoritative apostle, my inspired proclaimer of the gospel, I will build my church. I will build my church on the apostolic word. Brandon referenced it earlier, but Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the remarkable thing about this is that the church and its beliefs about Jesus have not changed in all of that time. What are we doing right now? Whose words are we reading? God's words is revealed through Matthew. Do you guys realize that everything that you know about Jesus, everything that you can know about Jesus that has been revealed with utmost clarity and truth has been given to us by the apostles? The words that we're reading now, that Jesus spoke, were revealed to you by the apostles. And so it's this beautiful truth that the foundation has not changed. Jesus points to his disciples and he says, my father has revealed truths to you about who you are and I'm going to send you into the world and you will be the foundation of my church. The church will be built on what you have taught as it has been revealed to you. Foundation hasn't changed. One final thing from this passage just to look at quickly is that the gates of hell shall not prevail Against it. In other words, the church cannot die. The church can't die. Death cannot overcome it. 
And you start to think about the history of the church. Like, when did this assembly of Jesus actually explode? It exploded in the first century after Jesus had been publicly crucified and raised from the dead and then ascended into to heaven. I was thinking about just this, this <laughs> unique, marvelous fact about the church. You know what generally stopped Jewish messianic movements was the death of their leader. Generally speaking, like somebody says, I'm the Messiah, and people would follow them until that person died. Does that make sense? Like, whoops, we got it wrong. But not Jesus. Matter of fact, you look at the proof of what Jesus said. He says this in Matthew chapter 16 before he dies, and the reality of it is carried on after he has ascended into heaven. And what he said he would do, he did. He began assembling his people. He sent his disciples to proclaim to the world this truth, that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. And those people began to grow and grow and to grow. And if you think about the reality of that, and how the world has been changed and how the church has grown from 12 Jews, a tax collector, a Pharisee, a zealot, and some fishermen. And the world has been changed and you're sitting here today because of it. It's still growing. And Jesus continues to build his church. And so there's, there's something we need to understand in that this is the idea that there is the church universal. And what I mean by that is the idea that the church is every person that belongs to Jesus Christ entering through this profession that Peter made, that he indeed is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God, entering into that. And it spans time and it spans space. And I think it's an amazing thought for us to just sit here this morning and think about this. What, what is Jesus up to right now? What he's up to right now is he is gathering his people to himself on the basis of who he is. It's not only a universal thing, it's also a local thing, even as we ourselves recognize that we are not the entirety of the church, but we are indeed the church. And so just two quick points of application on this. Where do you stand in relationship to Jesus' plan? The first thing I would just simply ask of you is, are you a member of his assembly? Are you a member of his assembly? Do you belong to his people? And do you know that you're one of his people through that understanding that you know that God has revealed to you? You see clearly who Jesus is and your life reflects that he indeed is the Christ, God's anointed ruler, God's anointed savior, the very son of the living God, and as such, your life is to reflect that understanding of who he is. Is your life built on the foundation that is given in the scriptures through the apostles and the prophets? The second thing I would just ask for us to consider and think about is this, as his assembly, are we as concerned with his plan as he is? Are we a Jesus-centered people committed to the Jesus-centered work of proclaiming Jesus as revealed in the scriptures, knowing that it is in doing that and that work that we do as his people that Christ is actually working to build his church? And just as we sit here this morning, I think about this. Did you receive and understand and come to believe in Christ the first time you heard of him? I bet the answer is no. And so it gives us this unshakable hope as his people, really? We don't have to be mean. We don't have to be rude. We can joyfully continue to celebrate this because we know that this is how Jesus does it. His people faithfully sharing who he is. And that is something that God himself has to work in and through to reveal. And so we can be patient and gracious with the world around us because Jesus was patient and gracious with us and continues to be. Let's turn to our second passage. This one's going to be found in the book of Ephesians. Uh, the book of Ephesians. And we're going to look at several different passages in the book of Ephesians. And we're answering the question here. 
answering the question, what is, what's the priority? What is the priority? And the answer to this question is, is really looking at, at Jesus' picture that he gives us, that Jesus, excuse me, that the church is Jesus' body. And Paul introduces this early in the letter to the Ephesians. It's actually found in chapter 1. It says that God put all things under Jesus' feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we're going to return to this in just a moment, but he picks up this theme again in chapter 4, and so that's what we're going to look at here. Some of Jesus' priority in the church. What is important to Jesus within this assembly that he's building, within this understanding that the church is Jesus' body? Let's read together Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. It says, and he, speaking of Jesus, he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church is Jesus' body, and Jesus is its head. And this is the idea that the, uh, just to, to give you an understanding of what head was from this time, the head is which is the most divine part and which reigns over all the parts within. Um, so that's the concept. I mean, you, you, you understand this. You all have heads. Um, and you understand that the head, generally speaking, when it's working properly, controls what the body does, right? That's what we want anyways. And so what is the church? The church is his body, and the body is meant for work. The body is meant for accomplishing, accomplishing work. I was thinking about this in relationship just to, to uh, thinking how like, how we know people, and I, I did a little survey just with, with Adrian last night. Um, I said, like, okay, think of your dad. She goes, okay, I'm thinking of my dad. Okay, it's like, what do you picture? She's like, my dad? I was like, yeah, but specifically, were you picturing his feet? She's like, no, it's weird, uh, right? When you picture a person, what do you picture? You're picturing a face. You're picturing, in general, what you know about them being located in the head. And what's interesting is that, that the person is actually, it's actually even behind, it's behind the face. Does that make sense? Like it's behind the face. We, and so we have, we have parts of our body and our body is, is uniquely what makes, what makes our, our head known. Does that make sense? Like I actually know you more through what you do than just like your head is revealed to me through your, really your hands and the things that you say, the words. Like you make yourself known through your head. And the reason that but Jesus has a body is because he intends that the body would do his work. He is the head to be the ruling over it, and the body is to be committed to accomplishing this work. And so as we, we look at this passage, there's, there's a lot in it. There's that Jesus gave, he gave these ones in verse 11. He gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers, and, and he gave them for the purpose of equipping the saints, that would be the members of the church, the saints, the people he set aside for himself, and it's to equip them for the work of ministry. It's for the work of ministry. And that means that every saint has been given a task and a role and something that they are to perform for the sake of the building up of the body until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
And so the church is the body of Christ made to do the work of service. The church is supposed to do stuff. Does that make sense? It's supposed to do stuff. There's no, there's no church appendix. Church doesn't have appendicitis. Does that make sense? Like, does that make sense? Like every part is useful. Every part is unique and distinct and created for the purposes of ministry. It belongs to every one of the saints and it's the will of Jesus the head. And the goal of this is to grow up into Christ and he gives this by speaking, verse 15, by speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. And the truth, I think in this context, the truth of what, what Paul is talking about is not just some abstract truth, but the truth that has been revealed about Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, concerning his church and concerning the reality in which we exist. It is the complete body of truth. You know how we speak about the Bible and that we recognize the Bible has many pieces and parts that make it the Bible? Same thing with the truth. There are many elements about the truth that we understand that Christ has, has taught us. And our goal is that we would be speaking this truth in love as each part has a part in this. And that what unites us together is Christ himself. What holds us together, what supports us together, what makes us work together mutually is that Christ is the head of us all. What makes this hand work together with this hand to do things, simple things. You guys ever, I, I, love, I love preaching because it makes me think about super weird things like the body. Um, I was thinking this morning, I, I was... I got up and I was like, I'm not hungry, but I know I should eat because I know my body needs food. My head didn't care about food. The food that I was eating, my mouth couldn't care less about. But I'm sitting in my study this morning and I'm eating bland oatmeal because Starbucks forgot to put the little good packet, like the other things with it. And I'm sitting there, I'm eating this and I'm just thinking about the message. I'm going, it's unique to think about what all is required in just this simple act of like, I'm holding the oatmeal in this hand, and this unique hand is dipping the spoon in, and then it's bringing it up here to my mouth. And now I'm chewing on it, and I'm swallowing it, and then it goes to places where I forget and don't really know what happens beyond that. And then that process somehow feeds and energizes the rest of everything, which is for the good of this thing. Does that make, like, it's amazing. And I'm sorry if you're bored by that, but you should really spend more time wondering <laughs> at the miraculous processes that your humanity shows you day in and day out that sometimes go like you plan and sometimes doesn't. And if you do that, it will give you so much of an appreciation for what, what Christ intends to do and why he gives us this picture that the church is the body of Christ. When the body is in tune with the head, things are great. One of the most frustrating things that we all experience, whether you've experienced it now, are experiencing it, will experience it, is when the body stops listening to the head. It's a beautiful thing when head and body are in sync. And the same is true for the church. The same is very much true of, of a local assembly like this. You know what makes a local assembly like this great? Is when, when every single member is in sync with the head. When every part knows that it has, it actually every part has the role of speaking the truth in love to those around it. When, when we show up knowing that we're coming because God intends to use us in the lives of the people around us. And Jesus' priority for the church, his church, his priority is that each part would be working. So that whether you're young, great. Whether you're old, fantastic. Both have work to do. When you're sick, when you're well, you have 
You have work to do. You're the body of Christ. You have work to do. If you're rich or poor or single or married, sitting in the floor seats, sitting in the balcony seats, we see you up there. You have work to do. Every part has work to do. Our growth depends on it. That's why as part of our church covenant, it, it's something that we try and commit to, that we're to keep a watchful eye over one another because every member matters. It's also part of the reason, and just, just to make a small point here, it's, it's part of the reason we actually have a formal membership at our church. Uh, formal membership, we mean we have a process by which um, we go through to recognize who's a member or not. Just because you attend here doesn't mean we assume you're a member. <laughs> You ever assumed wrongly on a relationship? Like if I walked into your house, I'm like, hey, good to see you. And I went up to your like laundry machine. I just started doing my laundry. And I said, hey, I'm going to be back in an hour. If you could throw those in the dryer for me, I'll be back to pick them up. I would probably have overstepped. Probably an overstep. Unless I'm family. <laughs> or just really annoying, right? And, and so part of the reason... Part of the reason that we have a, a church membership, just to, just to make this clear, like there, there is a process that we go through. We have a new members class whereby we explain what we believe and what we think. And then we actually ask one another, do you want to commit to this? Because if you're just here, we're not we don't want to presume upon the relationship. We're, we're, we are more than willing to commit to you, to commit to your growth to commit to this fellowship that Christ has. We, we want that. We long for that. And yet, we're not going to presume it upon you unless you agree to that relationship together. Does that make sense? Like, there's no accidental dating here. Like, oh, I thought we were going out. No, we're not. <laughs> and so that's, that's part of the reason that we do that. But certainly we see, even just thinking back to the universal church, we see Jesus' undeniable concern for every single member. And Jesus is the head of the whole body. The head joins and holds the entire body together. Jesus, the head, through each part, makes the body grow, building itself up in love. May we be that place. To look at the second priority here in this picture of the body, we need to turn back just to chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. Fifteen, verse 1 through 23. Paul says to these believers in verse 15, For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the glorious, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I wanted to start with the other one because I want us to understand that there is a, there's a work that we need to do, but I want to return to this one because one of the most amazing aspects of what God says about the body of Christ is that one of the purposes, one of the priorities of, Christ, uh, of Christ's body is for, is for Jesus' fullness. Um, just real quickly, a quick read might have us thinking that this says that Jesus is the head of the church. We've already seen that it says that, but that's not actually, if you look, that's not what verse 22 is saying. What is verse 22 saying? Jesus is the head over 
all things. He's the head over all things. And as the head over all things, he has been given to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And this is one of those sections of scripture where it almost feels like sometimes I get scared about preaching because there's a weight to the things that you have to say. And I'm concerned not only that I'll be able to express them, but that you'll be able to hear them correctly. And this is one of those things where I, I would begin by asking the question, does God need anything? No. Is God self-sufficient? Yes. Is God complete in his own person from all eternity into the future? Absolutely yes, and he is. And at the same time, what this passage says is that the body of Christ is his fullness. It is, it is, it is that which is his completeness. He rules and he reigns over everything. But as that glorious head over all things, God has, in his exalted position, given him to the church. And as his body, The church is such a priority to Jesus because he sees it as his own fullness. He relates to the church in a way that he relates to nothing else in all of creation. Jesus, um, that, that passage, he fills all in all, means that there is nothing in all of creation that Christ himself is not involved in ruling over and involved with. Nothing exists that Jesus doesn't have his hands in. And yet the body is unique to Jesus. It is his absolute priority because as he works in and through this organic body of his, he is bringing it to a place where it completes and fulfills him. And that feels heretical to say. (laughs) But that that is the value, that is the worth That is the position that every member has to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't give you a sense of of privilege and a sense of worth, I I don't know what will. And that should be the place where we find such deep joy and satisfaction, such a confidence in Christ. And so it's been my prayer throughout the week, like, Lord, help the church to grasp this amazing paradox with our minds. Let it permeate into our hearts this privilege that we have, that even as he fills us, he sees in us his own fullness. And that he's he, the head that has been given over all things, has been given to the church, nothing can keep him from bringing his plans to pass. And one of the things I think, just, just as we understand, if we could grasp this, it would give us such a joy and a hope and a confidence in, in all things. Now, if we understood, if we really, really truly believed and grasped that Jesus Christ is our, is our head, and he's not only the head of the body, but he's the head over all things, what confidence that would we, that give you throughout your life? We have a glorious supreme head who has been appointed over all things, that is ruling over all things. And what a gift of grace that is to Jesus' church, which is his body. Finally, I want to turn to this last question. What's, what's the purpose? What is the purpose of all, of all of this? And the purpose of Jesus, to understand the purpose that he's talking about, we have to look at the church as Jesus' bride. You don't need to go far in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we pick this up. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, let's begin reading in verse 25. Wives, excuse me, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as Christ. Excuse me. Beginning again in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So we understand this last picture, the church is Jesus' bride. Jesus' purpose in all of these things in the church is to be one with his, one with his people. When I was growing up, I remember hearing, I got to listen to preaching growing up in this church, and I remember hearing that the church is the bride of Christ. As a young heterosexual male, that really bothered me. And that was this analogy, and maybe, I don't know if you're sitting here this morning, maybe it's, maybe it's a male thing, maybe it's a female thing, that was something I really had a hard time holding on to. I'm like, I'm the bride of Christ. I don't like this image. It, it was troubling. It was something that was hard to grasp onto, hard to, to get, and I was just beginning with it. I'm like, oh, we probably need to acknowledge that. But I, I think for us to, to rather think of, rather than thinking of ourselves in like a wedding gown, which for some of you is just like, that's, I don't want to think about that. Rather than thinking of it like that, I think we need to try and actually lean into to understand what marriage is meant to be a picture of. Because marriage was created, it's saying that marriage was created divinely to be a picture of something we are yet to fully comprehend and understand. Marriage is this picture that God has created. And so here in this passage, Paul points to this relationship between Christ and his church to instruct disciples of Jesus about marriage. In other words, following Jesus is gonna impact your marriage. Wives are called to see how the church relates to Christ, and that's to inform their relationship with their husband. And husbands are called to see the way that Jesus relates to his church, and that's to inform the way that the husband is to follow in his relationship with his own wife. And then Paul quotes from Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so long as we're talking about marriage, I think all of us are, we're together on that. Like marriage is this picture where a man and a woman are, are joined together. Uh, males and females are distinct and different. Just, just even going to like anatomy. And they're built in a way where, where we could see in a marriage relationship, they're complementary. They fit together. To, to not be graphic, but to, to think about what the scriptures say, the two shall become one flesh. And it's certainly not less than the sexual relationship, but it's also way more than that. There, there is a unity. Marriage is meant to be a uniting of two into one in, in a whole life fashion. But then Paul goes on to say that this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so Paul points to this, this doctrine of marriage, God's design of marriage as a man leaving his household of origin and entering into a covenant with his bride where two distinct but complementary persons become one flesh, oneness, wholeness, completion, and it doesn't happen through the dissolving of each personhood. It happens through a unity that is so intimate and so full and so complete. I've stopped referring to my wife in, in recent years. I used to call her my better half. And then I realized something. I'm not half a person. And I realized kind of like what that implies. And I, I thought about it like from people who are single. Like I'm just looking for my better half. It's like, no, you're actually... Did you know we're all whole people? You're whole people. If you got married, 
You're still a whole person. Marriage doesn't remove your personhood, but what it does is it unites your personhood to another personhood in such a way that it's to become one. You're still unique, distinct individuals, but united in a way where you are united and complete and whole together. And what we see in this passage, this amazing purpose of Jesus Christ in the church and this amazing picture that he gives of it being his bride is that Jesus' purpose is to be united to his people. In oneness, in wholeness, completely, completely belonging to one another. The longest prayer that we have of Jesus is found in John 17. And Jesus prayed that prayer um, after, after the, it was on the night that he was betrayed. And he prayed that prayer after they had celebrated the Lord, after he'd washed the disciples' feet and after they'd celebrated the Lord's table. And after they'd gone out and he prays it before his arrest. And one of the things that he prays in that prayer points us to this point that Paul makes here. In John 17, 22 and 23, Jesus speaking to his father says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. He's speaking of his disciples. That they may become perfectly one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you, do you, see, how, do you see how marriage <laughs> In its divine creation, it's divine, it's at the best it could be. Maybe not, maybe not in our marriages, hopefully in our marriages, that would be our desire, but, but in its divinely inspired, created thing, how it points to something even greater than it, it itself is. And that is the purpose of Jesus to bring a people so knit and close to himself that he is in them, even as the Father is in him. And so one, so complete, so whole, that they, he identifies them even as his own. And that's where the marriage relationship becomes such a beautiful thing and where it's Jesus talking about the husband caring for his wife as his own body. Where it's this beautiful picture of Christ caring for his bride as his own body because it identifies it as his own. It belongs to him. That is what the church is. That's what you as a person are to him. That's why Christ cares so much about our faithfulness to him. You think about what a marriage is. A marriage is a covenant, and the reality is, the reality is that in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, heaven has sent its proposal to humanity. It's a proposal. You ever thought of it as that way? It's a covenant proposal. And Jesus paid the dowry. He paid the price to be able to even make this proposal in giving up his life and shedding his own blood on the cross to rescue and redeem a bride who could not be married to the God of heaven otherwise. As we start to think about the gospel, and I, I don't know where you are with the Lord. I don't know where you are with God. I don't know what your religious beliefs are. I know that not everybody here uh, probably identifies as somebody who's part of the assembly. That's great. That's wonderful. We're glad you're here. I'm glad that you're here. Thrilled. 
And just sitting here this morning, I, I wonder if you have ever considered that what Jesus is is a proposal from heaven. And the reason that this matters, the reason that this matters is because when somebody makes a proposal to you, you really have one of two choices, don't you? I, I, I took time this week to watch, to watch YouTube, and I just typed in, proposals gone wrong. <laughs> proposals gone wrong. Do you know what you see if you watch proposals gone wrong? <laughs> For the most part, you see men who did not have a proper understanding of where they were at in their relationship. Some women as well. And, and it's interesting because what you normally have is somebody getting down on their knee and you understand, maybe you don't hear the words, but you understand as they're holding up a ring, they are proposing. And it's interesting to watch because some of them get slapped. That is quite the rejection. Some of them, there's like this, you see the person and they're standing there and like baseball games. I'm sorry if you got married at a baseball game, I don't mean to trash that, but there's some where it's like on the jumbotron and there's the guy and he's proposing and you see the lady kind of like, she kind of whispers something, like I don't want to humiliate you, but no, no. And then there's other ones where they just outright run. Person gets down on their knee, there's one in Times Square, guy gets down on his knee and you see the girl take two steps backwards Gone. She just gone. Gone. And the reality is there are many different ways to reject a proposal. There's many different ways. Some can be kind. Some can turn and run. Some can be just like, what were you thinking? But the reality is that when heaven proposes, it demands an answer. And there are only two answers. You either accept the proposal you understand what God is saying and what God has put at stake and you understand what it means for you that you enter into this, this covenant that has been freely offered by God to become one of his people, to enter into this union with him, to cooperate him as the one who gives you life, as the one who gives you hope and a future, or you reject it. I think a lot of people walk through life maybe not thinking of it in terms of a proposal, and so they kind of just ignore it, but ignoring a proposal is an answer to a proposal, isn't it? If you were asking somebody to marry you, there comes a time where that ends, doesn't it? Where you, where you understand and comprehend, they, they have, whether they've legitimately spoken the words no, their life has portrayed no. And so I just, I, I, want, I want that to be perfectly clear clear to us this morning. There, there's a, have you heard the, have you heard the statement, um, hell hath no fury like a woman, like a woman scorned. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And the, the idea of that statement is that <laughs> there, there is no fury like the fury of a woman who has been loved and betrayed in love. That's, that's the concept of it. Came from a play long ago. But I was thinking of that in relationship to what hell actually is. And that I think the reality is that hell is actually the fury of a lover scorned. Does that, does that make sense? Where God is the one. God is the lover who has proposed to all of humanity. And it is like if you, <laughs> wish we could spend more time thinking about it, we have to keep moving. It's the most beautiful of proposals. It is the most giving of things. It is the most condescending thing that God could do. And that the reality is, is if you reject it, you refuse to acknowledge who he is and what he is, it is to your own demise that rather than gaining a lover, you will gain the fury There's a, can I quote an author, or sorry, an artist without you thinking I'm recommending her? I'm gonna do that, I'm not recommending her. 
But there's an artist, a song, singer-songwriter called Julia Michaels, and she has this song about exes. And she says, I want to live in a world where all your exes are dead. I want to kill all the memories that you save in your head. I want to be the only girl that's ever been in your bed. I want to live in a world where all your exes are dead, like you were waiting for me to be the first thing you fall for. The only girl that's ever been in your bed, I want to live in a world where all your exes are dead. Now, Julia Michaels does not hold to a Christian sexual ethic, but do you hear what she wants? What does she want? She wants faithfulness. Complete, wholehearted faithfulness. And throughout the pages of scripture, time and time again, God expresses that that is what he wants from us as well. From the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to this picture that we see of marriage being God's purpose intended for his people to be united to him in one, to be our one and only. And so may we be, those of you who are in Christ, may we be a person and a people who are committed to covenant faithfulness to our God. Reflecting his covenant faithfulness to us. And if you haven't come to that place of trusting in Christ, our prayer is that you would. That you would join into this community of people that Christ himself is building. This morning we have the, the joy of celebrating the Lord's table together. And... Um, this table is open to all who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and have publicly uh, professed their commitment to Jesus through baptism and obedience to his, to his commands. And um, we know that this table, uh, not everybody this morning here will participate and partake of it. That's, that's okay. That's great. We know that. That doesn't mean you're unwelcome here. But at this time, there's a, there's a bulletin if you want to read through that to give you some thoughts about what to think about in this time as others are taking, uh, participating. We encourage you to do that. But for those who participate, we remember that Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, that we might be holy and without blemish. And that is what we will be. That is what we are becoming. And just in preparation for this table, let's take just a few moments in silent prayer before the Lord, asking him to search us, to thank him for his faithfulness to us, to confess any faith, unfaithfulness on our parts to him. And then after a few moments, I will pray, and then you may come forward to receive the bread and cup, return to your seat, and we'll partake together. So let's take a moment to bow in prayer. God, we thank you that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We thank you that you do not deal with us according to our sins. You do not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love toward those who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far do you remove our transgressions from us. And we thank you that the sacrifice that takes away sin has been given in Jesus Christ. That there is a new covenant that is put forth, sealed by his blood. That all who believe in him 
shall never perish, but shall have everlasting life. We thank you and praise you that this is an act of your grace. We thank you and praise you that it gives to us a glorious hope and a glorious future, but also, Lord, a glorious present as you are at work in your church. We praise you and thank you for this. And as we celebrate today this table, remembering the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, may it bring a joy to us because we have fellowship with you through Jesus. Amen. You may now come to receive the bread and the cup, and we'll partake in a moment together.